Good morning. Let's pray this morning as we get started. And Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for your spirit, the way that you dwell with us, the way that you gather us together each Sunday um, to worship in your presence. Uh, we pray, Father, this morning as we prepare our hearts for worship by considering again the teaching of John Calvin, particularly this morning on uh, the church, on our mother. Um, we pray that you would, um, by your spirit, give us wisdom. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> we are continuing our study to this morning of the Institutes of John Calvin. Um, we are moving today into um, book four of the Institutes. Um, uh, Mike last week wrapped up book three. The Institutes are divided into four books, um, and they are, are titled thusly. I think it's helpful for us to see um, the, the flow of Calvin's argument. In book one, if you remember, we, we saw that Calvin unfolded the knowledge of God, the creator. The knowledge of God, the creator. And in that book, we talked about things like the knowledge of God, the knowledge of self, uh, scripture, which is, of course, the main way that God uh, conveys knowledge of himself to humanity, as well as God's work in creation and providence. Uh, book two, uh, Calvin titled, The Knowledge of God, the Redeemer in Christ. In Christ. So what is needed for God's knowledge to overwhelm and overcome um, the sin um, that uh, afflicts us and blinds us? It is the knowledge of God, the Redeemer in Christ, uh, which Calvin says was first disclosed to the fathers under the law and then to us in the gospel. Under that heading, Calvin considered things like sin and the law, and especially the person and work of Christ, in which he elaborated at great length. Um, then in book three, um, Calvin began to discuss um, what he titles the way in which we receive the grace of Christ. What benefits come to us from it and what effects follow? Um, so Calvin and his, his argument, if, if um, uh, Christ is the way that we know um, who God is um, for truly, um, then how do we get into that? How do we get into the God whom Christ reveals? And book three unpacks that. It talks about topics like faith. Uh, the Christian life, um, justification, union with Christ, prayer, and election. And these are all ways in which we receive the grace of Christ. And now we come to book four. Book four, the external means or aims by which God invites us into the society of Christ and holds us therein. It's very important for Calvin that the means by which we are implanted into Christ and receive his grace are not merely invisible to us. They're not merely um, internal. Um, they're also external. They're also visible. They're also external or visible means by which God invites us into the society of Christ and holds us therein, by which that union with Christ is achieved, which leads to our salvation. And here in this last book, Calvin will consider the topic of the church as well as baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, before he concludes his work. So that just kind of gives you a big picture of where we're at. We're getting close um, to the end of the Institutes. We're beginning book four today. So book four, chapter one. Calvin titles this chapter this way, The True Church, with which as mother of all the godly, we must keep unity. Um, Calvin is saying in this chapter that um, the true church is the mother of the godly, and we have to remain united to this mother if we are to hope for salvation. Um, first section, the necessity of the church. Calvin says, as explained in the previous book, 
It is by faith in the gospel that Christ becomes ours and we are made partakers of the salvation and eternal blessedness brought by him. So faith is how we are brought into Christ and are made partakers of his salvation. Since, however, in our ignorance and sloth, to which I add fickleness of disposition, Calvin was never one, of course, to mince words about the, um, the weakness of humanity, uh, we need outward helps to beget and increase that faith in us. We need help for our faith to increase and grow and advance it to its goal. And so God has also added these aids that he might provide for our weakness. This is a really crucial point as you understand this last section of Calvin's Institutes, that all these external means by which God invites us into the society of Christ and holds us therein, they are given to us because of our weakness as human beings, because we are prone to wander, because we are prone to forget, because we grow weary. Because of all these things, God gives us these great blessings, the church and her sacraments and the preaching of the word. Um, I shall start then with the church, Calvin says, into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons. He begins, of course, here to use that metaphor of the church as mother, which is an ancient um, and historic um, way of thinking about the church. Into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry as long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith. And here Calvin does something very interesting. He quotes from Mark 10 in a verse that's usually associated with marriage. He says, For what God has joined together, it is not lawful to put asunder, so that for those to whom God is father, the church may also be mother. Um, Calvin, of course, here is uh, relying on the work of Superion, uh, an early church father who said, you cannot have God for father if you do not have church for your mother. Um, and Calvin is agreeing with that argument and, and continuing it into his day. It's important for us to see that. And I understand that this is somewhat perhaps of a controversial thing in our day and age. As modern American evangelicals, sometimes we think of the church as sort of a, uh, you know, an extra add-on, right? Um, the main, it's not the main thing. It's not... You know, if you really need it, um, you can go. But the main thing is what's inside. The main thing is your private, internal relationship to God. Um, but Calvin is really going to push back against that um, idea, that, that anti-institutional idea about um, what is important in the Christian life, that anti-clericalism even that is so prevalent in the American church today. Um, he is going to say that you must, not you may, but you must even have the church as your mother. The visible church as the mother of believers, section four of this chapter. But because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, the visible church here, of course. Calvin is not talking about the invisible hidden church was the elect from all time. He's talking about all those who profess Christ and their children. The visible church. Um, let us even now learn from the simple title, Mother, how useful, indeed how necessary it is. It is not optional. It is necessary that we should know her. For there is no other way to enter into life. There is no other way unless this mother, that is the church, conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. Calvin is saying here, 
there's never going to come a time in your life when you graduate from your need from the church. Um, you cannot outgrow um, the, your dependence on the means by which God is providing Christ to you in this life um, through the church that he has given you. Furthermore, away from her bosom, that is the bosom of the church, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. Now, of course, we can talk about exceptions here. We can talk about the man on the cross if we want to. And Calvin, of course, would not deny those things. But here he is talking about the, the cases when the, the exceptions merely prove the rule, according to Calvin, right? And they only prove that the, the normal way, the way in which God ordinarily works is salvation is in the context of the church. That is where forgiveness of sins and salvation is ordinarily found. Um, he quotes from Isaiah and from Joel. Um, he also quotes from Ezekiel there um, when he says that those whom God rejects from heavenly life will not be enrolled among God's people. And he goes on and he quotes from the Psalms as well. And then he says, By these words, God's fatherly favor and the special witness of spiritual life are limited to his flock, so that it is always disastrous to leave the church. I think that's a, that's a strong statement, but I think that there's merit in it based on what the scriptures teach. If you leave the company of God's people, if you leave the company of the visible church, it is always disastrous, Calvin says, to go out on your own spiritually. It's important to say that some of the reasons why Calvin is, is hitting this so hard is because it was a present issue in his day. Um, the Anabaptist movement especially was rejecting um, the institutional church, saying that it was even an obstacle um, between themselves and God. They were rejecting, and the, especially in the radical Anabaptists, um, even uh, the idea of pastors and sacraments and these kinds of things. And so Calvin is really pushing back against that, and I think we find echoes of that in our day today, um, even if it's not explicit, then perhaps implicitly. Education through the church, its value and obligation. Here, when Calvin uses the word ed education, he's not talking about you know, how you can uh, uh, graduate from college or something. He's talking about your spiritual education, your education in the knowledge of God in Christ. But now let us proceed to set forth what pertains to this topic. Let's get into the nitty-gritty here, Calvin is saying. Paul writes, and this is a substantial verse for Calvin, passage for Calvin, as he understands the role of the church. That Christ, um, that he might fill all things, in Ephesians 4, 10 through 13, appointed some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all reach the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to perfect manhood, to the measure of the fully mature age of Christ. Calvin explains and comments on that passage and says, we see how God, who could in a moment, he could in a moment perfect his own, mature his own. But nevertheless, even though he could do it in a second, he desires them to grow up into manhood solely under the education of the church. He means for Christian maturity to be a process that takes place over time and for it to take place in a particular context, that is the context of, of the church. We see the way set for it. The preaching of the heavenly doctrine has been enjoined upon the pastors. This is the way in which he's going to do it. He's going to do it through the preaching of the word through particular people, the pastors of the church, the ministers of the church, 
we see that all are brought under the same regulation. This is, there's no exceptions to this, according to Calvin. Every Christian is the same. They all are supposed to grow this way, that with a gentle and teachable spirit, they may allow themselves to be governed by teachers appointed to this function. From this it follows that all those who spurn the spiritual food divinely extended to them through the hand of the church deserve to perish in, par- in famine and hunger. And the church, according to Calvin and the preaching of the gospel, especially by her appointed ministers, is where Christ offers himself. That's where God offers himself, um, not elsewhere. By this, and Calvin will go back to the Old Testament to show this as well. By this he willed of old that holy assemblies be held at the sanctuary in order that the doctrine taught by the mouth of the priest might foster agreement in faith. The people were meant to be gathered to God in the Old Covenant, that they might worship him, that they might hear um, the word um, explained and proclaimed and taught um, by the Levitical priests. The temple is called God's resting place, the sanctuary, his dwelling place, where he is said to sit among the cherubim. They came to church because God was there, in other words. Glorious titles, they are used solely to bring esteem, love, reverence, and dignity to the ministry of the heavenly doctrine. Otherwise, the appearance of a mortal and despised man would much detract from them. To make us aware, then, that an inestimable treasure is given us in earthen vessels, right, that whole jars of clay passage, which Calvin would argue is really primarily about ministers, not just about the church at large. God himself appears in our midst, and as author of this order would have men recognize him as present in this institution. Why is it the church where you must seek salvation? Why is it in the church that you must seek your growth in Christ? Why is it in the church and the preaching of the gospel by ordained ministers must you seek um, your knowledge and, and growth in the scriptures? It is according to Calvin because that is where God is. That is where God has promised to be. That is where God has promised to show up. But as he did not entrust the ancient folk to angels, this is an interesting point, right? God did not allow Israel to be guided by angels through the wilderness or instructed in the law by angels, but rather raised up teachers from the earth truly to proclaim, to perform rather the angelic office. So also today it is his will to teach us through human means. Calvin wants to argue that from beginning to end through the scriptures, this is how God has worked. He has used men to instruct the people. He has taught us through human means. As he was of old, not content with the law alone, but added priests as interpreters from whose lips the people might ask its true meaning. And this is something that's important to know about the Old Testament. The priests were not simply there to perform the sacrifices and to assist in them as the people came. Part of their role, the Levitical priesthood, was also to explain the law. Um, to proclaim the law, to, to, under, to explain to the people how God was at work. They were the preachers, so to speak, of the Old Testament. And so today he also not only desires us to be attentive to its reading, that is the reading of the word, but also appoints instructors to help us by their effort. This is doubly useful, Calvin says. On the one hand, he proves our obedience by a good test when we hear his minister speaking just as if he himself spoke. Now this is something that's taken up in the second Hovetic confession that says the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Um, That is a strong statement, but that is what the reformers held, that the right preaching of God's word was the 
God himself speaking. God himself spoke through the preaching of his word. On the other hand, he also provides for our weakness in that he prefers to address us in human fashion through interpreters in order to draw us to himself, rather than to thunder at us and drive us away, indeed from the dread with which God's majesty justly overwhelms them, all the pious truly feel how much this familiar sort of teaching is needed. Kevin would say, you, do not, you are not yet ready to speak to God face to face. You need a human interpreter. You need someone to speak on his behalf to you in this life before you are ready for eternity. Those who think the authority of the word is dragged down by the baseness of the men called to teach it disclose their own great ungratefulness. Right? If you argue, well, my pastor, you know, he's a sinner. He's like me. I've seen him mess up. Um, I've seen him do things. I know how he raises his kids. I know, you know, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it might be that you would say would disqualify a man um, from doing this. And within normal bounds, of course, of course, there are things which do disqualify men from preaching the word of God. But sinfulness is not one of those things. Because among the many excellent gifts with which God has adorned to the human race, it is a singular privilege that he deigns to consecrate himself, the mouths and tongues of men, in order that his voice may resound in them. Let us not accordingly turn and dislike to embrace, not in turn dislike to embrace obediently the doctrine of salvation, but forth by his command and by his own mouth. For although God's power is not bound... God does not have to work through these outward means, yet he has nonetheless bound us to this ordinary manner of teaching. That's a great distinction, I think. Um, Calvin there leaves room for God to work in other means than just the preaching of the word by ministers of the gospel. But he says, you are bound. If you are a believer, you are bound to this means because this is where God has promised to speak to you. Fanatical men refusing to hold fast to it, that is the preaching of the word, my ministers in the church entangle themselves in many deadly snares. Many are either led by pride, dislike, or rivalry to the conviction that they can profit enough from private reading and meditation. Right? All I need is the Bible at home. All I need is to read it and study it and think about it and pray about it, and I will be fine. Hence, they despise public assemblies and deem preaching superfluous. Anybody know anybody like this? This is not unusual today, right? This is not some kind of hypothetical thing. This is a thing that exists. It existed in Calvin's day, and it exists in our day. But Calvin says this, but since they do their utmost to sever or break the sacred bond of unity, no one escapes the just penalty of this unholy separation without bewitching himself with pestilent errors and foulest delusions. And of course, this is the danger of reading the scripture privately in isolation by yourself apart from the church, is that you very easily fall into error and even heresy, even dangerous understanding of the word and teaching of it. Um, this is a, a great danger and is one of the reasons with, by which God binds us to the true faith is through the right preaching of the gospel in the context of the church. In order then that the pure simplicity of faith may flourish among us, let us not be reluctant to use this exercise of religion which God by ordaining us has shown us to be necessary and highly approved. No one, not even a fanatical beast, ever existed who would tell us to close our ears to God. Everyone says they want to hear from God, but the question is where? Where are you going to hear from him? 
But in every age, the prophets and godly teachers have had a difficult struggle with the ungodly, who in their stubbornness can never submit to the yoke of being taught by human word and ministry. What Calvin is saying is that there's something inerrant in human beings that resists this, right? Because it is an acknowledgement of weakness. It is an acknowledgement of humility that you come to church and hear your pastor preach. It is an acknowledgement that you need this instruction. That's what Calvin says. And there is something in human beings that bucks against that. But he says, this is like blotting out the face of God which shines upon us in teaching. This is where the face of God is promised to shine upon you through the preaching of his word in the context of the church by approved and appointed ministers of the gospel. Believers were bidden of old to seek the face of God in the sanctuary. Where did the psalmist go to look for God? He went to his house. That's where he longed to be. As often as it is sometimes repeated in the law, for no other reason that for them the teaching of the law and the exhortations of the prophets were a living image of God, just as Paul asserts that in his preaching, the glory of God shines in the face of Christ. Doubtless for the same reason, David complains with great bitterness of spirit that he has been barred from the tabernacle through the tyranny and cruelty of his enemies. Psalm 84, David many times throughout the Psalter complains and cries out to God and asks when he'll be able to return to the sanctuary. When will he be able to go up to the temple? When will he be able to worship again with God's people? To many, Calvin says, this seems almost a childish complaint. What's the big deal, David? To be denied access to the temple would be a very slight loss and would destroy but little pleasure, provided other delights were still at hand, right? Don't you have the, the scroll with you? Can't you just read it for yourself? Nevertheless, David laments that he burns as tormented and well nigh consumed with the single trouble, vexation, and sorrow that he would be cut off from the people of God. Surely, Calvin says, this is because believers have no greater help than public worship. For by it, God raises his own folk upward, step by step. If there's nothing else you take away from this morning, I encourage you to wrestle with that quote, that statement of Calvin. Believers have no greater help than public worship, not private study, not private prayer, not acts of justice and mercy and love. Believers have no greater help than public worship. I think he's right. I think it can be defended. I think it flows clearly from the scriptures. This is the primary task of discipleship. This is the primary schoolhouse for the Christian. It is in the public worship of the church. If you show me someone who has worshipped for decades and decades, Sunday by Sunday, in public assembly of God's people, and I will show you someone whom the Spirit is at work and has grown and matured and become made like Christ. This is the fundamental, this is the foundation. This is it. Everything else is extra, so to speak. For by it, God raises his own folk upward, step by step. And why is that? It is because it is only in the public worship of God's people that God speaks through the preaching of his word. It is only in the public worship of God's people that the sacraments are offered to you through the work of the Spirit. It is only in public worship that your prayers are joined and united, not on your own lips, but also with all of those around you who are themselves together being built up as a living temple for the presence of God to dwell in. This is a, a fundamental thing. It is not optional. It is so important for us to see this. 
Um, Calvin also talks about forgiveness within the context of the church. This is one of the reasons he says that we need to be in church because it is in church that the forgiveness of sins is offered. Not only does the Lord through forgiveness of sins receive and adopt us once for all into the church, but through the same means he preserves and protects us there. For what would be the point of providing a pardon for us that was destined to be of no use? Every godly man is his own witness that the Lord's mercy, if it were granted only once, would be void and illusory, since it is each is quite aware that throughout his life of the many infirmities that need God's grace. Calvin is saying, you do not just need to have the forgiveness of your sins announced to you at one time. You need it again and again and again. You need it daily. You need it weekly. And where will you find that but the church? And clearly not in vain does God promise this grace, especially to those of his own household. And not in vain does he order the same message of reconciliation daily to be brought to them. This is the job description of the ministers of the church to announce the reconciliation of God to the people of God, that they are forgiven of their sins, that they are brought in and loved through Christ. So caring as we do the traces of sin around with us throughout life, unless we are sustained by the Lord's constant grace in forgiving our sins, we shall scarcely abide one moment in the church, but the Lord has called his children to eternal salvation. Therefore, they ought to ponder that there is pardon ever ready for their sins. Consequently, we must firmly believe that by God's generosity, mediated by Christ's merit through the sanctification of the Spirit, sins have been and are daily pardoned to us who have been received and engrafted into the body of the church. And how will we know that this is true? How will we be confident that our sins are indeed forgiven? It is as we hear it from the lips of one whom God has appointed to announce it to us, to impart to us this benefit. The keys of the church have been given, Calvin says. When Christ gave the command to the apostles and conferred upon them the power to forgive sins, he did not so much desire that the apostles absolve from sins those who might be converted from ungodliness to the faith of Christ as that they should perpetually discharge this office among believers. That's fascinating. Christ entrusted the keys of the church to the apostles and those whom they would call after them, those who would participate in their ministry, not so much for the conversion of the unbeliever, but for the regular reminder and proclamation and announcement to those who are in Christ. Paul teaches this when he writes that the mission of reconciliation has been entrusted to the ministers of the church and that by it they are repeatedly to exhort the people to be reconciled to God in Christ's name. Therefore, in the communion of saints, our sins are continually forgiven us by the ministry of the church itself when the presbyters or bishops to whom this, and basically Calvin just means pastors or ministers there, to whom this office has been committed, strengthen godly consciences by the gospel promises and the hope of pardon and forgiveness. This is why each week, each week, we confess our sins. And each week I stand and I say, God has forgiven you your sins in Christ, and I announce and declare this to you by his authority. It's not just me speaking there. It's me speaking in a special way on Christ's behalf, because this is the office to which I've been called and appointed and ordained. It is different than just you knowing it in your own heart, Calvin would say, because it is being pronounced and declared to you with authority by one in whom God is entrusted with that special authority to announce and declare the forgiveness of sins. It is at the heart of the pastoral ministry. 
This pastors do both publicly and privately as need requires. For very many on account of their weakness need personal consolation. And Paul mentions that not only in public preaching, but from house to house as well, he has attested his faith in Christ and has individually admonished each man concerning the doctrine of salvation. And of course, you know, I hear sins confessed privately. And in those times of confession, I declare as a pastor, privately, personally, the forgiveness of those sins. That's also something that we do as pastors. We're called to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, not only in the public worship of God's people, but in the homes of God's people, to God's people as they come and they meet with us. This is, this is the heart of the pastoral calling, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to the people of God. We should accordingly note three things here. First, however great the holiness in which God's children excel, they still, so long as they dwell in mortal bodies, remain unable to stand before God without forgiveness of sins. Secondly, this benefit so belongs to the church that we cannot enjoy it unless we abide in communion with the church. Thirdly, it is dispensed to us through the ministers and pastors of the church, either by the preaching of the gospel or the administration of the sacraments. And herein chiefly stands out the power of the keys which the Lord has conferred upon the society of believers. Accordingly, let each one of us count it his own duty to seek forgiveness of sins only where the Lord has placed it. The important thing to see here is really the entire worship service every Sunday is about the forgiveness of sins. Not only that moment of confession and declaration of forgiveness, but the preaching of the word is a reminder that your sins are forgiven, for by it God is speaking to you as his child. In the Lord's Supper, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, because by it the Lord himself is uniting himself to you through the work of the Spirit and the person of his Son. These things are offered to you in the same way, um, the same reason. And they're offered to you in an authoritative way, in a way you cannot have them. You cannot have them in the same way at your home, by yourself, with your Bible before you. You simply cannot. Because that is not where God has promised especially to speak in these ways. It is only in the context of the church through his appointed ministers. Why then does God need men's service? Again, this is the best and most useful exercise in humility. This is interesting. Why does he do this? One reason is to keep the people of God humble. When he accustoms us to obey his word, even though it be preached through men like us, like you, and sometimes by even those of lower worth than we. Sometimes you might even have a pastor that's not as spiritual as you are. If he spoke from heaven, it would not be surprising if his sacred oracles were to be reverently received, received without delay by the ears and minds of all, right? If God spoke to you audibly every day, of course you would listen. You're not that much of a fool. But when a puny man, risen from the dust, speaks in God's name, I love how he puts that right. When a puny man, you can relate to that, risen from the dust, speaks in God's name. At this point, we best evidence our piety and obedience toward God if we show ourselves teachable toward his minister, though he excels us in nothing. What Calvin is saying is that when you listen to your pastor preach and you treat it as though God is speaking to you, you are actually showing yourself to be humble. If God showed up and you listened, well, good for you. But if a pastor shows up and you listen, well, by it you learn humility. It was for this reason, then, that he hid the treasure of his heavenly wisdom in weak and earthen vessels, 
in order to prove much surely how much we should esteem it. For nothing fosters mutual love more fittingly than for men to be bound together with this bond. One is appointed pastor to teach the rest. And those bidden to be pupils receive the common teaching from one mouth. This is a way of providing for the unity of the church, Calvin says, when one man speaks on behalf of God to the people and all listen and learn. For if anyone were sufficient to himself and needed no one's help, such as the pride of human nature, each man would despise the rest and to be despised by them, right? If each of us were authoritatively interpreting the, God for, the word of God for ourselves and we had these dueling interpretations and teachings, what would be the effect, Calvin says? Well, it would be division and strife and rivalry and envy. But the Lord has therefore bound his church together with a knot that he foresaw would be the strongest means of keeping unity while he entrusted to men the teaching of salvation and everlasting life in order that through their hands it might be communicated to the rest. This is the manner of fulfillment. Through the ministers to whom he has entrusted this office and has conferred the grace to carry it out, he distributes and dispenses his gifts to the church. It is through human men. And he shows himself as though present by manifesting the power of his spirit and that this his institution, that it be not vain or idle. Thus the renewal of the saints is accomplished. Thus the body of Christ is built up. Through the ministers of the church, through the pastors of the church, thus we grow up in every way unto him who is the head and grow together among ourselves. Thus we are all brought to the unity of Christ if prophecy flourishes among us, if we receive the apostles, if we do not refuse the doctrine administered to us. For neither the light and heat of the sun or food nor food or drink are so necessary to nourish and sustain the present life as the apostolic and pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth. This isn't because your pastors are better than you, this isn't because there's some strange hierarchy. It's because simply these are the men that God has appointed and called out and set apart and ordained and promised through his spirit to speak. I think that is another quote that's worth remembering. This is why you should pray for your pastors. I covet your prayers. This is a heavy calling. It's one I'm often conscious of. That the faithfulness of the word of God that I'm called to is something that is necessary for your preservation. It's not optional. It's not an extra inspirational bonus if you hear a good sermon. It is the necessary means by which God has given to build up his church. So pray for me. Pray for your pastors. I will skip up here. Uh, da, 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 da. Um, Calvin here in this section under apostles and pastors will talk about um, that the office of the pastors, there are these particular functions to proclaim the gospel and to administer the sacraments. And within our Book of Church order, this is the way in which the ministry of, um, quote unquote, the teaching elder, it's not a term I love, but the minister or pastor, I think is a more biblical and, and historic term. The office of the pastor is distinguished from the office of the ruling elder by this, that the pastor is the one who is entrusted with proclaiming the gospel, preaching the word, and administering the sacrament. That is not something that we um, allow or permit or equip or ordain other men in the church, even other officers in the church to do. Um, the pastor is uniquely called to the ministry of the word 
and sacrament. That is a distinction that carries over into our polity today in the, in the Presbyterian Church of America. Um, yet, it is not my present intention, indication, and set forth the da-da-da-da-da. All right, I'll just skip down here. Um, so Calvin says here at the end of this, um, to all who have been appointed watchmen in the church, that is, pastors, the Lord announces, if by their neglect anyone perish through ignorance, he will require the blood at their hand. It is a heavy calling to be a pastor. It is not one that should be taken up lightly. There will be an accounting that is given at the end on the last day for the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacrament. To them, all applies what Paul said of himself, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel since I am entrusted with a commission. Finally, what the apostles perform for the whole world, each pastor ought to perform for his own flock to which he is assigned. This is the way, you know, the apostolic ministry, of course, according to Calvin, was unique and special in some ways, and yet um, part of the uniqueness was the global nature of the apostles' calling. They were to take the gospel to all the world, and of course the apostles still work through the church today, in a sense. And the, what the apostles did for the whole world, each pastor does for his own flock, his own parish. He proclaims the word of God, he explains the work of Christ, he shows how the scriptures point to him, he administers the sacrament, he trusts um, that through these things, these ordinary means, the Lord works his salvation. Um, Calvin here also begins to talk about some of the other offices of the church. Um, he says, here it must now be noted that to this point we have considered only those offices which are engaged in the ministry of the word, that is the pastoral office. Nor does Paul mention the others in the fourth chapter of the letter to the Ephesians. According to Paul, what I'm sorry, according to Calvin, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 is the pastoral office in particular. But in the letter to the Romans, Romans 12, and in the first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, he lists others as powers, the gifts of healing, interpretation, government, and caring for the poor. Two of these, Calvin says, I omit as being temporary. That is healing and interpretation. According to Calvin, these are not gifts given to the church in the same way today. They were for that apostolic age. But two of them are permanent, government and caring of the poor. Governors, and here Calvin is referring to what we would call today ruling elders, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, were, I believe, elders chosen from the people. This is true of the ruling elders in your church. They are elected by you. They are your representatives. Um, you do not have a search committee and seek for them and call them. They were not approved by the presbytery. Um, they are your, um, your representatives, your elders. And they were charged with the censure of morals and the exercise of discipline along with the bishops. This is why the word ruling is appended to the word elder in our church, because the ruling elders are, among other things, certainly there's a shepherding role, there are, they do, of course, um, announce the word of God, especially privately, and explain it um, to the members of the church, but, but they are there to judge, to rule, to exercise discipline, to, to, to watch over the flock carefully, to keep watch over their souls, um, for otherwise, for one cannot otherwise interpret his statement, let him who rules act with diligence. Each church, therefore, had from its beginning a senate. And Calvin here would, I think, go back even to the Old Testament, the elders at the gate, the men who ruled over the city, who announced and proclaimed judgments. Each church, therefore, from its beginning had a senate chosen from godly, grave, and holy men. We took away that term last year at General Assembly, grave, from the requirements of elders, and I'm not sure it was a good idea. I think it's a good word grave and holy men, which had jurisdiction over the correcting of faults. 
Of it we shall speak later. Now experience itself makes clear that this sort of order was not confined to one age. Therefore, this office of government is necessary for all ages. The deacons. The care of the poor was entrusted to the deacons. However, two, this is interesting. This is a way that Calvin is a, is a little bit different from our current structure. Um, but I think it's actually pretty interesting how he does this. However, two kinds are mentioned, two kinds of deacons are mentioned in the letter to the Romans. He that gives, let him do so with simplicity. He that shows mercy with cheerfulness. Since it is certain that Paul is speaking of the public office of the church, there must have been two distinct grades. So Paul would see two kinds of deacons. Unless my judgment deceive me, in the first clause he designates the deacons who distribute the alms. These are the deacons who have authority over um, resources, who give it to the poor on behalf of the church and the needy. But the second refers to those who had devoted themselves to the care of the poor and the sick. These are not those who so much have administration of funds and authority in that way, but they personally give themselves and care for those who have needs in the context of the church, especially the poor and sick. Of this sort were the widows whom Paul mentions to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5. Remember that order of widows that Paul talks about there. Women could fill no other public office than to devote themselves to the care of the poor. If we accept this, as it must be accepted, there will be two kinds of deacons, one to serve the church in administering the affairs of the poor, the other in caring for the poor themselves. And clearly, as you can see here, Calvin believed that women could participate in that second order of deacons, that second nature or, or grade of deacons, that they could be among those who were appointed to care for the poor and the sick. All right, that's all I got. I've got time for maybe one or two comments or questions. All right. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, good question. Yeah, I, this is something I feel strongly about as a pastor. Um, I know there are some churches where, yeah, there's their confession of sin publicly done, and then there's either nothing said or maybe a scripture is read, um, and then nothing else is said. Um, I think that is, candidly, a, a failing of the ministers of that church to, to boldly grasp with both hands the authority that God has given them and to proclaim explicitly to the people that their sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ and they can be confident that it's true. Um, I, I really think that this, a strong word of absolution or declaration of forgiveness is something that is, and I think the reason for it is people are afraid of, there's anti-clericalism. There's a fear of, you know, one man being set apart for this special calling and that somehow is detrimental to the whole or that is somehow uh, superstitious. Or, and I just, I think, I mean, if you read Calvin in his commentary on John 20, he goes into more length when he talks about the keys. I mean, this is something that the, reformer, the reformers did not think that. Calvin was not unusual in this way. The reformers understood that one of the main roles of the pastoral office um, was to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Now, they, of course, threw out the sacrament of penance and the, the confession as some private confession, some kind of necessary sacrament of the church, of course. 
and we would as well. But that does not mean we throw the baby out the bathwater. You know, there's something right about going to a pastor to confess your sins. The wrong thing about the Roman church was requiring it as a means of salvation and, and growth in Christ. But there's something, we deprive ourselves of a means that God gives us to be confident of our forgiveness when we don't have pastors declaring it to us boldly. Um, John, do you have a question? That's true. It is. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think we've also, I mean, our church has a completely like, individualized assurance of salvation. Right. Yeah, it's a corporate thing. It's not just simply yeah. for us as individuals. That's true. Donna, do you have a question? And then we'll probably have to wrap up. Sorry, James, I'll get to you after the service. After. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would just answer this briefly. I, I don't think necessarily Calvin, I mean, we, um, we think of church membership in very different ways, I think, than they would have thought about it in the um, 16th century. Uh, we see it as a voluntary thing. We see it as something that we, and I think there's benefit. I encourage people to join the church. I don't see it in the same way. I think that it's possible to put yourself um, by public, continual public worship, by participating in the life of a church. Um, I wouldn't say that you're, if you don't join a church, you're somehow, you know, this is some act of rebellion against God. I do think that vowing yourself to membership in a particular local body is a very helpful means to do what Calvin is talking about. And I would highly recommend it and encourage it. Um, but I do think that we, for Calvin, you were just, you were just, you were a member of the church. You just were, wherever church you were that was proclaiming the gospel. And um, then your participation in that church is what really judged your posture towards it. Does that make sense? Um, so that's how I would, I, would, I would answer that. But today, because, we, because of the way in which the church has been split and changed, and I do think public, or, you know, taking vows of membership is a very healthy and appropriate thing for a Christian to do to a local body. All right, let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that your spirit is at work in our midst. We thank you even for the church. Um, we thank you for how um, you've promised um, to grow us in maturity, to make us like Jesus through the preaching of the word, through the administration of the sacrament, through the announcement of the forgiveness of sins, um, through um, this institution, um, through even men who are called and ordained to this office. We pray that you would bless us in Christ's name. Amen.